Hello and hi again to Nutshell, a weekly wrap of the best interviews and podcasts on biz news. Well, the biggest bombshell that hit South Africa this week was the unexpected and unexplained death of the CEO of Busasa, Gavin Watson. The Zondo Commission Chairman, Justice Raymond Zondo, has since announced that he had recently signed a director for Watson to furnish the inquiry with an affidavit, and he said they were in contact with his lawyers. The Watson family had not confirmed whether they were in possession of an affidavit. Jared Watson, who is the nephew of Gavin, told Alec Hogg on Rational Radio that he only became involved after the allegations of corruption surfaced against Basasa, and as a trained chartered accountant, he helped his uncle with submissions to SARS. It's only recently as a result of these allegations that have been raised. I have no historical relationship with the business beyond it being uh, beyond my uncle being the ex-CEO of the company. I actually saw him the night before his passing. He actually left my home at around, I would say, somewhere in the region of 8 o'clock. Um, and that's when I last saw him. I was due to see him the following morning at, I said, any time between 7.30, 8.30. Um, we were going to be driving to Pretoria together and to see uh, uh, our attorneys uh, uh, in preparation for the following day when Gavin was due to appear at a tax inquiry. And um, and that's when I didn't hear from him the following morning. I, I, I did some phone calls to see, you know, it was very strange that, that he hadn't gotten back to me. Um, and then we realized he had passed a few hours before that. What was he, what was his mood like when he left you on Sunday night? Very good. We, we, we had a wonderful weekend. It was my daughter's birthday on Saturday. Um, he was here. And we've got family pictures. Everyone just had a, a great time. He said it was an incredible birthday. Everyone had a lot of fun. Um, we prayed together over the weekend uh, on the Sunday. Um, uh, my, it was my wife's uh, baby shower. We were expecting another child. And so all the men were over here at my place, and we spent some time together as a family, as we always do on the weekends. Um, and when he left here in the evening, he was very jovial, um, and we were, he was well prepared for his inquiry. Um, and, yeah, I didn't expect nothing out of the ordinary. It was a normal Sunday for us, I suppose. You say a tax inquiry. Elaborate. Um, it was, uh, I can't, can't say specifically when the date was, but a few months ago, um, on the strength, I believe, of the accusations that were raised at the state capture inquiry, um, SARS, I think, logically had to investigate the accusations and a tax inquiry was called. And um, Gavin has already appeared before and he was due to appear again yesterday. Um, yesterday, today, sorry, um, he was due to appear again. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. I think it's a normal formality. I believe that, you know, they have to give their evidence. They're asked questions and they have to give their answers truthfully. And it was nothing more than that. We were, we had prepared a 400 page file of all evidence, um, supporting everything that he had to say. And it was due to be submitted, um, which we believed would have, um, explained or cleared up his name in all regards. I've given much of that to yourself, I think, um, which you're aware of. Um, and, and yeah, sadly, he was never able to attend. I'm not sure if you picked up the, the, the latest news, uh, the latest scuttlebutt, but there was a, a, mm. there's a piece on Times Live this morning that says, it quotes an unnamed SARS source 
who says mm. that Gavin smuggled 500 million rand into a trust account in Guernsey. And that's absolute nonsense, um, Alec. I'm fully aware of all his financial affairs. Um, it is something that we, has been part of this inquiry, so we would have put all that together. Gavin is, uh, I would, is not a wealthy man in the regards of, of his assets that he has beyond his shareholding in the company, um, which, of which he was a minority. Um, he, as I've said to you before, he's got a two bedroom townhouse in Krugersdorp. It's not, nothing fancy. He doesn't even own a car. His car was, uh, was a company car that he paid fringe benefits tax on. Um, it, it was, it was seized by the liquidators in February when they, when they were, they went into voluntary liquidation. Um, and has been at the office since then. Um, beyond that, he has a home which he bought in Port Elizabeth, which was in, in the mid nineties. Um, before um, Busasa was anything, and really there's nothing else to tell. Those are his assets. He has no foreign passport. Um, he doesn't travel regularly be, uh, beyond the borders of South Africa, only in the past for business. Um, there's nothing really else to say. Um, the only person I know that has assets overseas is Angelo Gritzi, the man making, we believe, all these allegations. Uh, he He's the person who has a foreign passport. He has a mansion in Italy. He has a olive grove in Italy. He has assets outside the country. Gavin has nothing. And, and, um, there's nothing really. I mean, the allegation is absolute nonsense. If, if there is 500 million rand overseas, whoever is making the accusation is welcome to go and get it hmm. because we know absolutely nothing about it. That, that, uh, car that you've mentioned now, there were reports immediately after Gavin's passing that uh, he traded in or he'd taken his BMW X5 and, Mm. handed it in at Bosas and taken out a Toyota Corolla on Friday. So uh, what car did he arrive at your home on, on, on Sunday? I actually cannot remember what car he was in. He might have been in that car already. I, I can't recall. Um, but for some time, Gavin hasn't had his his BMW. It's been in parked at the office park since um, since sometime in February. Uh, uh, when, the, when they entered into voluntary liquidation, uh, which was – um, precipitated by the fact, the fact that the banks um, had said that they would be withdrawing their banking facility. Um, the liquidator uh, who entered the office park seized all the cars, and that vehicle has been there since February. Um, there's, there's really no complexity to the story beyond that. Hmm. What, what was he doing then at the airport at 5 o'clock in the morning if he was going to be coming to see you at top of 7? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that is the... The great question, Alec. Um, we are investigating. We don't know. Um, it's merely speculation at the moment. I don't know if maybe he was going to have a meeting at the airport. It is a regular spot to have a meeting before someone flies out of the airport. Um, before he came to see me, maybe he was um, the Busasa ran, which I think people are well aware of. Busasa did security at the airports. And <clears throat> generally what would happen is the staff would meet in the morning before um, before work hours, uh, I think I think um, work uh, the work started at six, and sometime before then they would have a prayer and they would sing a, a worship song. Um, the staff at the airport. I don't know if maybe he he wanted to be there for that. He uh, because he was awake and he decided to go. I don't know if I actually don't know. We don't know anything really at this stage of time. Jerry, just to close off with, do you think there was any foul play? Um, Alec, we're not ruling it out at this stage. Um, We've heard before uh, accusations that have been raised in the media. 
where apparently Mikey Schultz told News24, I think, that or, or just reported News24 that uh, Angelo Gritzi um, had offered to pay him money to uh, assault Gavin in March 2018, which is the same time I provided emails to you where Angelo Gritzi and his cohorts were wanting to come back into the company. Um, so it doesn't make sense. Um, the only bit of evidence we have is that Gavin Watson's uh, phone uh, wasn't found, and we were doing a track on that phone um, on the on the day, and someone was assisting us, and the phone happened to be in Germiston during the day and then moved to Bryanston by 7, 8 o'clock at night, which is sometime after he had already passed, which raises many questions. Um, because of this, we just can't rule out anything at this stage. So there was a phone uh, in his possession, yeah, which which... When you got, it was never found, never found in his possession, but, but we were tracing it and during the day it, the phone was in Germston and then it moved to Bryanston in the evening, um, at around seven o'clock, I think it was. And we went with the police to go try find the phone, but they could only locate it to a radius of somewhere in the region of apparently 30 to 50 meters. So we looked around in the dark and we couldn't find it. And then eventually we, we were no longer able to trace it. There are probably numerous people who would have thought of how they would punish former Steinoff CEO Marcus Joerster. And the three words they have for Aldri Joerster, as he is known in some Stellenbosch circles, is certainly not, I forgive you. But this is what Bram van Heistien said, who ended up with relatively worthless Steinoff shares after the deal that traded his company Tekitan for 3.3 billion rands of Steinoff stock. Van Heistien is set on getting Tekitan back, and he and his CEO, Bernard Mostert, who says they have been duped, are in for a bruising legal battle. Mostert said everybody is under pressure. I can't speak for all my colleagues because I don't know how all of them handled it personally, um, but certainly I found sanity in doing one thing every day. I, had a, I made a list for myself and I SMSed people just to make sure that there wasn't a suicide. I think that there was a, there, there was a suicide in 2008 around um, the, the financial crash, and I always said tragedies happen when people die, so I SMS people to make sure that they're okay and that they're hanging in there, and it was an interesting time. You know, it's also interesting who stays in touch with you today and who doesn't. I mean, that I say with a, a wry smile on my face. But mm. the second thing is that we a, a day after the event, we walked into the offices of Weber Wenzel and we said we want to ensure that we start the proceedings to have our business returned to us because clearly we have been duped. And then we decided in roughly August that we would start over, some of us, and um, and we bundled together and we started Mr. Techie and we have 28 stores today and I think you more so than most people understand starting over. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, like any business, it's a difficult thing to start, but it's fun. And there's, there's, there's priceless memories that are here. And, um, we also look forward to, to having our business back one day. And we're building it, um, with a, with a nod of, um, you know, uh, what you call it credit, I guess to our friend Lawrence Vernus in Studio 88, who has multiple chains that don't compete with one another. We said, let's start something that won't compete with Techie Town for when we get it back. It certainly looks like 
the public supports the validity of our claim and, and, and also the judgment by Judge Erasmus last week in the Western Cape High Court. But we've had no approach or engagement with Steinoff. Um, we've obviously had quite an aggressive narrative from PEPCO, um, trying to shut down our current business, trying to fight us. Um, you know, and that, that in itself is a bit ironic to us because uh, the PEPCO management themselves are suing Steinoff for what they are calling fraudulent misrepresentation that happened in their case two years before our case happened. You know, so there's this Afrikaans saying, the dealer is so good as the stealer. No, I don't know. I don't understand how you can say, I'm fine to hang on to this uh, defrauded asset, but I myself is going to lay a charge based on exactly the same premise. It sounds extraordinary. Uh, we did have a what I would describe as a usually reliable source uh, writing to us to say that Bram van Hastien remains very close to Marcus Joester, that he defended Marcus Joester in radio interviews. And this source went so far as to say that Marcus's Bentley was seen outside uh, Brahms' fan court property on regular occasions. Now, those are, are pretty heavy allegations. Two or three days after Marcus's resignation, and Marcus came to him in person after he had sent him a message to say, I cannot, you will never be able to forgive me for what I've done to you. Um, and Brahms said that um, if you look me in the eye and you ask me for forgiveness, then I will give that to you because I'm not going to be moved forward in bitterness and hatred and with a quest for vengeance. And also, um, I hopefully am wise enough to understand that you could not have acted alone. So Marcus at that stage asked Brown for forgiveness and um, make of that whatever you will. They have stayed in touch. I wouldn't say that they are extraordinarily close, but certainly the concept of Ron Marcus as Bentley parked outside Brown's Fancourt property is wish-wash because Brown himself doesn't live in Fancourt anymore. And I, I think this year, because even I looked at it, he spent 15, 15 days this year there. So I mean, that's obviously just um, a, a rumor that's juicy. But, but certainly, I mean, he has been in touch with Marcus. And like he said to Leon, because Leon is um, standing firm and holding fast to a defrauded business, he forgives him too. Is he, is he really that forgiving? Yeah, I must say he is. And um, it's, uh, you know, that uh, having known him all my life, it's uh, and, and a privilege to have known him all my life. I, I can say categorically that he is that forgiving. And, um, you know, I know not all of us are. And I think that all of us want justice, especially in today's society. Um, but it's, uh, I think, you know, certainly myself can take a lot from, from Brown's attitude around, um, you know, we walked away from it at this stage alive. And how we react to it is going to define us. And um, I am I'm always amazed at this concept of saying, you know, because if you look at it, it's, it, it's, it is mind-blowing that he can be that forgiving, but still wants his business back. And clearly there's, there's no amount of forgiveness 
that is going to make good on the fact that he's lost his life's work. And that's why we've got a legal channel and a, and a court system. And, and clearly the momentum and the narrative in that respect is, is very firmly in our case. And, and also in the case of everyone else who has a claim against Steinhoff, because everyone has been defrauded and, and a environment has been set up in which we could be defrauded. The other main story of the week was that after months of economists, analysts and everybody else who like to give the government advice, telling President Cyril Ramaphosa that his new dawn is looking like a wet day in the winter in the Western Cape, Finance Minister Tito Mbuweni announced, Hi guys, I have a plan. It involves selling coal plants and visa reform, among other measures. And Mbuweni has invited comments to the plan. Kusatu immediately torched it, calling it incoherent, confused and unreliable. But the business community was cautiously optimistic, with Santam CFO Henny Nell saying the positive message was that there was a plan that could be discussed. David Shapiro told Alec Hogg that he agreed with that message. It's a cut and paste from the National Development Plan. Good for him. I, you know, I like Tita. He's, he's trying. Uh, uh, and Good for him. I've got to, I've given him support. Whether he can ever get this off the ground, you know, beyond just sending out memos to other cabinet ministers, but at least, you know, he's, he's, he's got a bit of energy and he understands exactly what's happening. He's not politically moved. He knows what he has to do. And I've seen that on many occasions where, uh, uh, you know, where I've, where I've met him or not socially or bumped into him and that he's, I, I think maybe we underestimate him. There was plenty on business on personal finance. Dawn Riddler of Karango Wealth Ecology shared insights on how to grow your wealth with exchange-traded funds or ETFs with Jackie Cameron. Basically what it does is it will mimic or track an index, right? So, for example, you might have the JSC index or the JSC Top 40 index and um, – And that's where all ETFs started in the States and here and all around the world. They they track the major indices. Now there are thousands of them. So you don't have to have a a human sitting in there making decisions on what to buy and sell. The the computer does it for you. You know, they've designed algorithms that just track the market and and that that is what happens. So because they've taken that, that active management role out of it, you know, you don't have to have asset managers. That has brought down the costs enormously. If you want to compare uh, what we call, still call in this country, unit trust, but they're supposed to be called collective investments. In the States, they're called mutual funds, but they're the same thing. These unit trusts, they're, under, they're run by active managers, and sometimes the active managers in a whole variety of different sectors and different asset classes and of course they all have to be paid now in this country on the upper upper side of some of these these unit trusts you can be paying 2.3 2.5% per annum in costs to for for that active management and unfortunately because of the market and everything else they really um for the last few years haven't performed despite being active despite having real humans trying to find out what's going on in the market doing it so these so the computer just follows the market so you get what is i call proudly average right right but i mean if you've been getting proudly less than average 
from an active fund of paying 2.5% when you could be paying 0.5 or less, it just makes sense to to go that, that ETF route, especially if you we're talking about equities. When we start talking about having a balanced fund, in other words, a fund that has to comply with the Pension Funds Act or one that you don't want it to be so volatile, you want it to have some exposure to an asset class like bonds or an asset class like money, um, then ETFs start to become more more problematic. It beggars belief that a professional fund manager can't actually uh, get a, a higher return than 2.5%. You know, um, the, the thing is, um, as, as we discussed in our, in our last talk, is we, we have to look at real returns. Now, real returns in the South African context um, over the last three years in equities has been virtually zero. Wow. Right? Now, remember, real inter- real return is the return, say it's 5%, minus inflation, which is 5%, which gives you a real return of zero. That means your purchasing power of your RAND cannot grow. That's why we have we insist on getting rewarded for investing our money, because we want that money, for the purchasing power of that money to, at the very least, keep up with inflation, if not more. But if you have the opposite problem, that of debt, and have found yourself or somebody who works with you or for you in a position where banks would no longer lend to you and you have approached a loan shark, Candace Payne has some tips on how to manage the situation. These loan sharks are a socially embedded phenomena that that many South Africans deal with. You know, some of the numbers that I've seen is that there are 40,000 of them operating across many, many informal settlements, you know. And and as with anything, there there are good and bad ones. And, And what a person approaching a loan shark needs to do is find a good one because they are already in the informal lending business. But I I was just thinking about something else. I know the banks hate repossessing properties, and certainly in in the townships it's even worse because you almost feel disloyal to your neighbor if you go and buy their property from an auction uh, from the bank. Surely the first point of call for her should have been to go to the bank and to try and find a way of addressing those arrears, or are banks just so hard that that wouldn't have been an option? You know, the banks are open to renegotiation and there are options available to people. It's really knowledge and access, knowing what you can do, knowing who to speak to, knowing what you can ask. And that's the fundamental issue with financial education and financial planning in the South African context is people don't understand what is available to them and they don't have um, the knowledge. And with everything in life, the devil is in the detail. So potentially there may have been an opportunity for her to renegotiate with the banks. But now that she is sitting in a position where she um, is owing money to a loan shark, maybe she can take that information and renegotiate with them, you know, and actually set up a plan that she can stick to. Because the other thing is they could, you know, the the interest could compound so phenomenally that she's never going to get out of this debt. And that's not a win-win situation for either of them. The loan shark actually does want the money back, you know, they they want a client that can pay, and she wants to get out of the debt. So it it is around negotiating and talking and understanding the numbers more than anything else. But what about the new legislation that's coming out, which is attacking banks, I guess, in the one hand, 
is where it's saying that if you owe the banks more than 50,000 rand and you earn less than seven and a half, which uh, a month, which is, of, of course, wouldn't uh, apply to this, uh, this person, um, then you can get it written off. But I guess loan sharks aren't going to be listening to that legislation. So loan sharks are unregulated and, and they're illegal. So, you know, they are lending money illegally, but it's not illegal for somebody to borrow from them. So they fall right out of the ambit of any sort of regulation. But the national credit regulator has put itself out there and said that if a loan shark has, for instance, taken your ID or your passport or your cell phone um, and is holding that as collateral against a loan, you could contact them um, to to retrieve those items and potentially shut the loan shark down. But as I say, these are these are useful services in um, various segments of the economy, and so there are better better and worse ones, you know, ones that are not um, charging the kind of interest rates that make it untenable for people to pay back. So if people are approaching loan sharks, what they probably need to do is consult with people in their community and see who who which ones work and which ones don't, you know, which ones are reasonable and which ones aren't. From the loan sharks perspective, they also don't want to be viewed as soft. Um, as, as handing out money and, and not really following up on the payment. So there is a lot of intimidation. There is a lot of shame that goes around in trying to get their money back. It's not a great system, but it's one that is working. We South Africans can sometimes be as grouchy as the most bedorned Dutchman and gloomy about the future. And some don't share our Alex's sunny outlook on the country. Well, they had plenty to say on Alan, not Craig's think piece on how to live happily in South Africa. It was read by more than 50,000 people. Not Craig says people who disagree with him have a right to do that. But he is committing 100% to South Africa. And for me personally, you know, the whole point of me being optimistic about South Africa is it's not so much about a rational argument, because there is no real rational argument saying that South Africa is going to be crashed. It's just about reality. I don't, you know, I'm an economic prisoner. You know, having another passport is not the way to have a plan B. You really haven't have to have a lot of money if you want to leave the country. And I, I don't have. So, so once I realize that I, I'm, you know, I'm stuck here, then what's the point of getting negative about it? I'd rather just uh, commit 100% to my country and be happy. Um, and maybe it all works out, in which case I've, I've made the most of my years here. Maybe it doesn't work out, in which case I'll have to leave anyway. But, for me, um, there's absolutely nothing to be gained by being negative and staying in South Africa. Mm. It, it's quite an interesting uh, thought process that you went through there to say, <laughs> well, I am a prisoner anyway. What the hell? Let's yeah. make the best of it. Whereas <laughs> yeah. many other people say, I am a prisoner. I'm, I'm angry about it. I will remain resentful about it. How did you cross that river? <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I think prison is such a negative word. It makes it sound like I live in South Africa against my will. I love this country. I've been privileged to travel to lots of countries in the world. I think I live in the best country in the world. I think for a bang for buck, you're not going to do better than this country. My family's here. The people who laugh at my jokes are here. This is my place. So I'm not a, I'm not saying I'm against my will. I don't have to live in South Africa. My family and I can live anywhere. We choose to live here. But as far as money is concerned, you know, to have the quality of life I have over here, um, I'm certainly an economic prisoner. There's no, there's no other country in the world where I can get this quality of life. So, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like uh, believing in God. You know, at some point you ask yourself, uh, is he around? Or is she, he or she, is she around? Isn't she? And, and you know, you've got absolutely nothing to gain by not believing in it because if you end up going to heaven and there's a God, you're going to look like a fool. So I'd rather just work on the assumption that everything's going to work out fine in the end. Mm. 
Mm. Well, it's a good starting point to go from, but what do you really think about whether things are going to work out fine in the end? Well, I really think that Cyril Ramaphosa is one of the best presidents in the whole world. So it's something to be proud of. And I think he's writing the ship, just like everybody else. feels like he could be doing more. He could be doing faster. But I'd hate to be in his shoes. So. But at the very least, we've got somebody running, you know, steering the ship that's um, going to put the institutions back on track. And I also think that we've got a lot of untapped potential. I think the state gets a lot of things wrong, just like other countries. The state gets a lot of things wrong. And if we had plugged a lot of the leakage there, not just uh, corruption, but uh, inefficiency, that's all you really got to do. It's not like you have to discover the world's biggest oil reserves. So I think that our country has enough potential. I mean, at the end of the day, your country is your people. I've traveled a lot in South Africa in the last few years for business reasons, for all the small towns, and I never meet, I never meet um, assholes. You know, I meet very nice people, black, white, Afrikaans, English, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, whatever. And they're very respectful. They share my values. They want to make a living and put your kids through school, and they don't want to steal. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful country when you think of the people that make it up. So I just want to try to turn a deaf ear to all the headlines and, and remind myself that it's a country with great people and great potential. And with the right leadership, I think we can get there. We had one of your critics say that uh, he really enjoyed your piece on Biz News, but he hated the part where you say, <laughs> don't read newspapers. <laughs> what was beyond that thought? He probably owns a newspaper. <laughs> so, look, I mean, I'm a big fan of newspapers. As you know, I've always supported Daddy Maverick. I'm a massive supporter of the free media and, and newspapers in particular. I think they saved the country in the last few years when, when you think of Scripture Leaks, etc. But there's really nothing to be gained by reading negative headlines all day, every day. You're getting frustrated about stuff that you can't influence. Well, that was your news of the week in a nutshell. The full interviews and podcasts are available on the Biz News website.